Hosting provided by Host Tornado. They offer website hosting packages, dedicated servers, and VPS solutions. HostT.net. Programming Throwdown, episode 45, Inside Video Game Programming. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everyone. I, uh, I upgraded to Windows 10 on my Windows machine. It's, uh, it's, a, it's pretty cool. It's a big upgrade. I skipped, uh, I had seven, but I skipped, uh, I guess it's eight. Yep, and everyone um, skipped nine. Everyone skipped nine because uh, no, uh, Counting. no major company wrote code that could handle Windows 9 without accidentally calling it Windows 98. Um, so, they, <sighs> so they skipped that one, which was smart. And uh, went straight to Windows 10 and I got it. It's, it's pretty cool. But it's not a um, beta anymore, right? It's actually like out out yeah it's totally out um the only thing that was uh was hard was um my sound blaster card sound blaster said they weren't gonna create drivers for windows 10 until october and so um but then it turns out somebody created some third-party driver (laughs) which is probably like leeching my credit card and other valuable Uh, i was gonna say it's probably better but it's probably mining bitcoins (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I'm just kidding. It's probably it's actually when I ran the setup, it is the same. I I think he just somehow monkey patched the uh, the the existing driver to fit Windows 10 because the install shield is exactly the same and everything. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something about my social and credit card or something. But other than that, it worked fine. I attempted to uh, do it and I got this error. It said something happened, and then the subtext something happened. And then that's it. Yep. And you could close. So were you in like a limbo state now? Like where you your, your machine? Just no, closed? no, it was like, you know, you're supposed to, I was supposed to create media for it or whatever. Uh, and so like, I, I have a feeling that you're, you know, you're supposed to wait for your turn and it's not been my turn yet. And so, but there was like, people said like, Oh, you can just go to the download tool. And so I just downloaded the download tool. And I, I think maybe it knows it's not my turn. I'm not sure. I didn't look into it. I had, I was just going to try it and see if it worked, and it didn't. And so then I gave up and figured I'd try it later. I gotcha. Um, one thing that helped is uh, I got the... Um, I, I had the developer preview, mm-hmm. and I was running it in a virtual box, and I was like kind of seeing what it was like. And uh, anyone who had the developer preview was had like a priority queue. So so on the very uh, first day, I was able to get in. I didn't, I mean, I didn't plan on that. It's just kind of luck. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's pretty cool. So I did mean, you uh, did you install from scratch or did you just upgrade? I installed from scratch because part of it was um, I I'd, I'd upgraded from like two thousand to XP to seven Ooh. on the same hard drive. Whoa! I know it's this ancient fifty four hundred RPM, uh, you know, magnetic hard drive. And Wait, the, so the it's like a hundred gigabytes or something? Something like that, a hundred or two hundred. It's like it's uber slow. Oh. And. Uh, I just, I know you can migrate to SSD, like migrate your windows, but I thought, you know, it's been so long and so patched together that I just wiped it and started over. Wow. Um, yeah, it's actually, it was not bad. It's quite like liberating to not have just an incredibly cluttered, uh, you know, programs menu and all of that. Yeah. Every time I have to clean install, I always, there's always something missing that takes me forever to remember how I got it installed last time. Like the non-obvious stuff, right? Like, oh, here's this program, but how did I do that? Oh, there's this plugin. Where's that plugin? And then, 
and it just turns into a mess, right? It's right because your system's just not set up the way you it used to be set up anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, it's gotten a lot easier now because I do so much in the browser, uh, and yeah. and you have like whether you're using Chrome or Firefox, it syncs, and so all of my Chrome extensions just kind of magically showed up and everything. Yeah. Um, I guess my you know, problem is I use my desktop for exclusively things I can't do in the browser typically. Because if I can do it in the browser, I just do it from my iPad or my phone. That's true. That's a good point. Uh, for me, it's it's basically just Steam. <laughs> and oh, one thing about this that was kind of cool. I pointed Steam to uh, where Steam was installed when I was on Windows 7. And I just told Steam to install there. And it, it detected that. And it said, hey, I see you, you're installing on top of Steam, so I'm going to figure out what games you've installed and like get your OS sort of up to speed with your file system. And it kind of reconciled all of that. It was nice. really cool. And saved them a bunch of bandwidth. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they had a huge incentive to do that. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so that's Windows 10. Uh, apparently there's bugs. Um, there's this Ars Technica article talking about um, some bugs. I haven't hit any of them, but but I've literally just used Steam. Oh, and Audacity to record the show. <laughs> Are we so, recording on Windows 10 right now? Uh, not now, Aww. but uh, but I was recording on Windows 10 a little earlier. So, okay. uh, yeah, it worked. Very good. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's Windows 10. Uh, another piece of news that's kind of interesting is, uh, you know, there's a lot of this where sort of, you, you might work at a place and there's a, uh, you know, like a, as we're going to talk to some video game professionals later, there's, you know, they, I'm sure they have you know, a graphics team and a, uh, like a, a graphics engine team, artist team. Maybe they have like a analytics team that's looking at how many people are using. We'll have to ask them. We haven't so, said that yet. Oh, stay tuned. We have an awesome interview that we're going to do here in a few minutes. That's right. That's right. Well, I, so, I hope it'll be awesome. <laughs> yeah. And so maybe they have like a, uh, analytics team that's that's looking at how many people are hitting their website, things like that. Um, where I work, there's the same thing. There's a bunch of, diffi- of, of different teams. And uh, they all sort of have their own hardware, like their own resources, their own cluster of machines that they use to go off and do work. Um, and it's not very efficient. I mean, if one team isn't using the cluster, their cluster, and the other team needs to do something really important, they should be able to use that other team's cluster without like having to ask for permission and things like that. That's kind of takes forever, right? So um, Google's had this thing for a while called Borg, named after the the Star Trek um, thing. But they uh, um, they recently open sourced. I don't I don't think they open sourced the Borg itself, like what they have. But they made a similar version that like leveraged a lot of that. Maybe it's like Borg version two or something, and they. And they open source that, and it's called Kubernetes. Uh, we'll give you a link to it in the in the show notes. But um, but it's pretty cool. You can set this up on all of your machines, company wide, and you can set up you know quotas and things like that, and say, okay, this team is guaranteed to have fifty machines, and this other team is guaranteed to have fifty machines. And so if you have a job that can take anywhere from 50 to 100 machines. It'll use all 100 as long as the other team isn't using it. And if the other team comes on, it'll start kicking your guys out and replacing it with that other teams because they, you know, they they have a quota, right? 
So uh, it does all of that. It's pretty cool. Um, and I'm pretty excited to try it out. Yeah, this sounds like something I need for my home. I, you know, I run about 40 different computers in my basement. And <laughs> right. No, that's a lot. The one that the one that powers the nuclear submarine that searches for dinosaurs is that one. Has that one finished yet? That sounds awesome. Is that a book? <laughs> I just made that up. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, speaking of books, it's time for book of the show. Book of the show. My book of the show is. Uh, it's a it's a relic, but it's it's quite entertaining. It's uh, the Mythical Man Month, and it's an old book. It's like what 1998, I think, um, 1995, and it's all about sort of project management, software engineering, and um, sort of how. I mean, it talks about a bunch of different things. I'll just say one thing. Uh, one piece of it is they talk about how one person can do a lot because that person can keep a lot in his mind and doesn't really have to document or collaborate. And so they could just hold the state in their mind, especially when they're doing like a prototype. And as soon as you add, you know, a second or a third person, it increases the overhead and causes the productivity to go down. And then you eventually like you make it up with, you know, economies of scale, right? And I guess at some point, if you keep going, then it breaks down again. And, and this thing kind of talks about... Um, just project management, how, how hard it is to estimate schedules and, and, and things like that. And it's, it's really quite interesting. I won't do it justice by trying to explain it myself, but if you're interested in how software companies get things done, you know, if you're a type of person that's done a lot of side projects and they either kind of don't go anywhere or they tend to linger and you kind of think to yourself, man, like how, like if you have to, if you, how can you tell someone a year from now, there's going to be product X. Like, like, how is that possible? And uh, this sort of explains, kind of breaks that down, explains how to do that. Have you read this? No, I have not. Man month? The first few times I saw this reference, I always saw it said the mythical man moth. And then I thought <laughs> it was like a, like a, I don't know, like a fiction book or whatever. Nice. Or like, you know, <laughs> Loch Ness Monster, the mythical man moth. I don't know why, but for like several years when I kept seeing it mentioned, I always thought that's what it said. Awesome. <laughs> mythical man moth. Yeah, month, man, month. Yeah, anyways, I have so, not read it. I hear for people who that don't I should know, read it, I guess. But Yeah, for people who don't know, the man month is basically a month's worth of one person's work. So in other words, you might have eight man months worth of work, but if you have eight people, then it gets done in a month. So just, in that, that's, theory. that's sort of where the man, in theory, yeah, it's where the, that's that's where where the man month comes from. Yeah. Right, because yeah. it says, oh, if you had, you know, 30 people working on it, well, I guess a man month isn't 30 days, but yeah, 30 people working on it, you could finish it in a day. Yeah, like it, the, the calculus doesn't work that way <laughs> in reality. Have you heard that saying, uh, like, this baby's taking too long, you know, put nine women on it, <laughs> get it done, get it conceived, get it uh, uh, birthed in a month. <laughs> you can have nine babies in nine months with nine people, but you can't make one baby in one month with nine people. That's right. And it's the same with software. Maybe not the same numbers, but... Okay. My book right. is a fiction book, Armada, by Ernest Klein. You may remember him. He's been a previous Book of the Month author. He wrote Ready Player One, which, Jason, you read Ready Player One, yes? I thought it was amazing. Yep. Yeah, I was so a we super both big read fan. It. <clears throat> and uh, I also really liked Ready Player One. Um, 
Armada is also uh, very good. I, I didn't like it as much as Ready Player One. To be fair, it's not a sequel. It's a completely just another oh, good. book. I'm actually glad it wasn't a sequel because I felt like Ready Player One like was pretty conclusive. I wasn't really ready to to sort of see that storyline continue. Nope, nope. It's just another story. has nothing really to do. I mean, it's a similar style, obviously. Same author, but a uh, completely different world. And uh, I find it, instead of being themed of like 80s, you know, stuff. It's more mm-hmm. like science fiction and science fi- uh, like video games, like science fiction video games instead of like 80s video games. Okay. Um, so that's just more my cup of tea. Uh, and so in some ways that made it like a more fun read for me. But in some ways I think it hurt it a little because uh, he has lots of references and he would explain them. Like uh, my buddy tells me, use the force, Luke, quoting my favorite line from Star Wars. And it's like, <laughs> Yeah, we got it. We know. Oh, yeah, that's true. But when I read it for 80s references, I'm not as good. And so, like, I needed it, and it was okay. But yeah. now it's kind of like, no, I already know that. Um, <laughs> so I found that part a little bit uh, grating. But Well, I know nothing about... Well, not nothing, but I know... Uh, by nerd standards, I know nothing about science fiction. So uh, so uh, this will be good for me, I think. Now, when I say science fiction, this isn't, like, hard science fiction. This is, like, Star Wars, Star Trek... Um, even that yeah i mean okay. i'm very weak Last I, I know the i don't, I don't know anything <laughs> okay uh, anyways but i you know i definitely enjoyed it I, it was a fun read and I, towards the end he I, thankfully it seemed like i didn't notice him saying it as much so uh it was it was easy i didn't i didn't feel like this game bombarded and i actually listened to this on audible as i do lots of my reading because i i call it reading but it's listening because i'm stuck in my car for a long commute each day and uh, if you would like to get a book from Audible, they do help sponsor our podcast. And you can go to www.audibletrial.com slash programming, throw down all one word, all lowercase, and you can get a free book for a month. And then you can cancel it and you can keep the book. Um, and I have a subscription for Audible that I just pay for and I really enjoy it. And I've canceled it in the past when I had too many books to read and you get to keep all those books uh, and then when you pick it back up again, you can get more. Awesome. Very cool. So I like Audible. And if you have a commute, it definitely helps the commute be a little less tedious. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a, listen a little, to us first. A little listen less. Listen to us first, but then after you listen to us, go to work. Well, oh, I thought they when we publish this podcast, they sit at their computer and listen to it until it's done, and then they go to work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't... You can't uh, you know, record, like take notes on the book of the show if you're driving. That's true. But to be fair, this will be posted on our website later. <laughs> right. Exactly. Cool. Uh, okay. Time so for it's tool of the show. Tool of the show. So oh, that was almost my robot tool of the show is, um, so is I actually posted about this on the, the uh, actually I posted on my personal G+, uh, but it's called Photopia. And it's a interactive fiction. Um, and if you don't know what that is, um, it's basically... Um, choose your own adventure. Yeah, it's choose your own adventure. But instead of a multiple choice at every step, it's these two-word imperative sentences. Um, and the state machine is much, much larger. So you know, in other words, you could put things like go north, uh, you know, get torch. Um, things like that. Open door. It's like door. Zork. Exactly. Zork is a is an interactive fiction, and so 
um, I generally hate interactive fiction because um, the puzzles really frustrate me. And because it's so open-ended, like there's, I mean, any verb you can think of may be what you need to do to that torch to get to the next room. So you're like kick torch, drop torch. You know, and it, it's just, you end up like having to go and like read a tutorial or something like that. That's called cheating. <laughs> yeah, you end up having to cheat. Um, so, I, but I love the idea of using the interactivity to delay the story and, and to sort of add a human element to the story. And, and I mean, that's basically what Final Fantasy does, right? I mean, Final Fantasy, I mean, in my opinion, is a movie that has sort of these game elements in between to kind of stitch everything together and like to kind of keep you excited, right? But there are real choices too that do influence the story. Yeah, I mean, that's true. It's an oversimplification. But um, so this so this interactive fiction, Photopia, there is not that much puzzle solving and there's also a, a help built in. You can just type help and you, or maybe it's hint and you get a hint. Um, can you just type give answer? Well, if you type hint, you get a pretty good hint. Okay, go end. Um, Go, go end <laughs> end game um, the narrative is, is extremely compelling basically it's, 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 it's temporally non-linear and so you start off kind of in the middle and it's called Photopia because there's different colors representing the different actors in the scene uh, whose perspective you're, you're in and uh, uh, it actually it's a little more complicated than that with the colors but at any rate and so you sort of like flow, you know that you're not flowing linearly through time because you're experiencing things just in very, like you experience someone as a teenager and they experience their birth and it's just kind of like, but, but it all kind of stitches together. And for me, I kind of figured out all these disparate characters. I figured it, figured out sort of how it came together about 70% of the way through and it was just kind of mind blowing. Like, I, like all of a sudden it kind of hit me what was going on. Um, so definitely check that out. You can get it on, there's a web version, there's iOS, Android. It's all free, which is pretty cool. So uh, check that out. Also, um, uh, Benz Magyar uh, posted and he had another interactive fiction called Choice of Robots. Um, this one's literally a choose your own adventure, uh, but some of the choices you make cause your stats to go up in different ways and that kind of limits or expands, in other words, the choices you can make later on. So in other words, if you make a bunch of choices of type X, it'll be harder to choose choices of type Y. And so it kind of like guides your character in a sense. Um, but these are kind of fun. They're, they're usually pretty short and, uh, and, and uh, short and sweet. And Photopia is definitely a must. Photopia is like the Beatles of interactive fiction, <laughs> like what the Beatles are to music. So I mean, everyone, everyone will love this, will love Photopia. So. It's the Uber of interactive fiction. <laughs> That's right. That's right. They're the uh, yeah. They're the unicorn. The Netflix. So. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Got it. My my tool is not a tool, but a game surprise. Like almost every week, and that is Don't <laughs> Starve on iOS. Is um, this good? I've seen this on Steam for PC. Yeah. I so I guess sure. it's been out for like computers, and I think there's even a version for the PSP, maybe PlayStation. I don't know if it's on the Xbox. Um, but Don't Starve. It's kind of a roguelike. Except okay. that you know you it's you know fully animated in a in a very uh, specific style. I guess it might or might not be your style, but 
Um, you run around kind of a procedurally generated world in 2D and you collect stuff and you try to craft things and you try to survive and like kind of everything goes against you. Your guy gets hungry and you need to make sure to provide him enough food. Not everything is nice to you in the world. Um, and so I've been playing. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Um, cool. I, I, I had stopped playing it for a little while because I kind of got like frustrated. Like I did something. I guess it was my fault, but then like, you know, I ended up like dying at a part that I didn't think I should have died at, and then I got kind of mad. And so I've been playing it, but I will go back to it. Um, the game was just doing its part and being harsh, which is a little bit of a harsh game. Um, oh, okay. I think a lot of games baby us these days, and you know, it's really hard to lose, and you just expect to be able to do whatever and not die, right? Like your guy can get shot. 50 times before he has to respawn. Um, yeah, I do think that a lot of games that have like quick save and quick load, as soon as you introduce quick save, quick load, then you don't have to worry about replayability, right? Like you figure the person is never going to have to play the beginning of the game more than once if they don't want to. And so it can cause game designers, I think, to be a little lazy. Whereas, you know, if you make Mario, you better make World 1-1 pretty cool otherwise I mean, that's going to be 90 percent of of what people play you know what i mean yep cool yeah i'll check that out i love roguelikes so that sounds that sounds awesome all right and uh now we're about to have an interview and that's right that's right we're, we're going to interview uh uh dave who works for uh, naughty dog and we're going to... Interview Florent, who works for Ubisoft. That's right. And uh, they are actual game developers. So we talked about game development, uh, uh, um, game programming in the past, but uh, we got an opportunity um, to interview people who are actually there doing it. And uh, that was definitely very exciting for us. And uh, I think you'll, you'll find it, we'll all find it pretty awesome. All right, so we'll be back, back in just a second. Hey everyone, we have a very special show today. We're actually talking about industry game programming and we have two industry game programming experts. We have Dave Smith, who's a tools programmer at Naughty Dog and we have Florent. How do you pronounce your last name? Devishabal. Devishabal? Yep. De <laughs> cool. Florent Devishabal is a tools programmer at Ubisoft. And I'm sure you guys know about Naughty Dog and Ubisoft. Um, they're also gonna kind of explain uh, explain those companies if you don't, which is fine. Um, and so we're going to kind of talk about what it's like to work at a real game studio. I'm sure a lot of you uh, out there are very interested. So um, just to get started, uh, kind of, you know, Florent, Dave, tell us a little bit about sort of your history, how you kind of got involved uh, in games programming and, and things like that. Um, all right. Hi, everyone. Um, so I've always wanted to do uh, video games, actually. So... Uh, once I graduated from uh, the university, I simply started to look for a job in the video game industry. Uh, um, uh, I didn't find a job at first, so I went to work as a software developer. Uh, I did that for a year, and then after that, Ubisoft was looking for a tools programmer. I applied, and um, I got hired. So I worked uh, on Assassin's Creed, and uh, now I'm working on The Division. And how long have you been there? Uh, three years. Cool. And uh, yeah, so what about Dave? Hi, uh, this is Dave. I, um, so I've worked at Naughty Dog about six years, and uh, 
Before that, I was uh, I worked at a few startups in San Francisco, and then I was an independent consultant for a while. Um, I like like Flo. I when I got out of school, I really wanted to make games, but I at the time it was 1999, and I was seduced by the the <laughs> hope of becoming rich in San Francisco at a software startup. And if you know anything about the software market around that time, I got there just in time to see it all crash. So I, I never got rich. <laughs> Um, did you did you bounced. go to any of these? I heard crazy stories about, you know, like Pets.com bought this entire hotel and anyone can just stay here and just kind of crazy stories about the dot-com boom. Did you, did you experience any of that? I, there's one story I have that is crazy to me. I worked for a company that was incubated by a startup incubator, which is basically just a, a big company with a bunch of investment funds that has been given the edict to go spawn smaller companies that hopefully will go into the next pets.com, I guess. And so I think they had an endowment of like a billion dollars of which we, uh, the company I worked for had a seed of, of some tiny percentage. But of that billion dollars, they spent something like two or $500 million of it buying a big old building in downtown San Francisco, which seems just like the most flagrant, wasteful way to spend your money if you're, if you're trying to work as a startup incubator. But other than that, I don't really know a lot of, you know, truly crazy startup stories. <laughs> All right, cool. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. So after after I bounced around uh, a few startups, I decided to uh, become an independent consultant. I did, did that for a few years, but always still wanted to make games. So I uh, just started applying to different studios and studying the things that I thought I needed to learn to do that. And eventually uh, wound up here at Naughty Dog. Cool, cool, very awesome. Um, so, um, what are sort of the different roles? I mean, imagine you know a game requires a lot of different people to kind of come together. Um, you know, obviously people know about these really old games like Pitfall and things like that that were made by one person, but that's sort of more of like a relic, right? And nowadays, you know, a lot of uh, there's a lot of people involved in making a game, and so what are sort of these different people that you have to work with? And so what are the the requirements or the expertise that each of them bring to the table? Yeah, you, you definitely can't make a game alone anymore. Well, you can, but uh, if you want to make AAA games, it's kind of hard to do it on your own. Because, uh, well, obviously you need artists. So people who will basically make all the 3D assets or 2D assets that you need. So the meshes, the textures, um, you might also need animators, so people who will make animations for your characters and for your AI agents. Uh, the des designers also are really, really important. They are basically uh, building the, the rules of your game. Uh, and also, the, the, they are doing the level design. Uh, uh, basically, it, that's what a good level design is what makes a game fun compared to a game that won't be fun. Uh, you have also programmers, of course. Um, well, you have a lot of different type of programming in a in a AAA studio. So, of course, you've got tools. But you have a lot, like you can have graphics engineers, you can have gameplay engineers, uh, network, uh, UI, uh, QA. Uh, so, yeah, you you can do a lot of things in programming. Um, one thing also that is also that is really important is all the the testers and the QA team. Uh, basically, they are here to make sure that uh, 
the the level of quality for for the game uh, is reached like the game is really what it needs to be uh, yeah I don't know Dave what do you think about it yeah yeah I think that's a pretty good list I think uh, there are some roles that people tend to overlook when they're thinking about game production um, just because they're not part of the core the core production process so I think the people you mentioned are the the uh, kind of the army that goes into deployment and builds most of the game. But then there's also a lot of people in pre-production, like the writers and the concept artists and designers, who uh, do the early work to figure out what the game is going to be about and what it's going to look like and, uh, you know, the story structure for the game, if you have a, a narrative game. And then on the flip side, at the end of the cycle, there's a lot of people in QA, like you mentioned, to make sure everything's going to work, but also who do localization to translate the game to, you know, 25 different languages and who do release management and marketing. And then also uh, there's usually a lot of producers who manage the time of the individuals involved with production. Although I mentioned that knowing that uh, Naughty Dog, unlike most studios, has very few producers. We have a couple producers from Sony and that's all. Whereas I think most studios have, uh, the producers are much more involved in production. Yeah, I think one thing interesting with video games is that whatever you're into, uh, you can practically apply it to video games. Like if you are into architecture, well, you can build levels uh, using your architecture skills. If you are into writing stories, well, you can basically write stories for video games. So whatever you like to do, uh, uh, I'm pretty sure there is a field uh, where you can fit in. What's the mobility like between different roles? So most people listening to the podcast are, you know, kind of coders at some level. Um, if you're working on, say, tools programming, how likely it is over the course of your career that you'd also maybe do, like, graphics engine work or, um, you know, other kinds of coding roles than just tools programming? Or is it people kind of have their thing and that's what they tend to stay with? Well, I would say it depends on the company you're working on. Like, uh, maybe some companies, they... If you're a tools programmer, you're going to stay a tools programmer. Um, at Ubisoft, actually, you can change if you're a tools programmer and you want to change to gameplay. And of course, if there is an opening for that role, uh, you can do that. Uh, but I, I think it's al it also depends on the, uh, what you want to do. Because uh, basically, of course, if you've been doing, I don't know, graphics programming for 10 years and then you're, you're applying to another company to make network programming, uh, they might wonder why you're doing that, <laughs> or you know, they they might say, okay, but you you you're so good with graphics, we wanna we wanna keep you into graphics. Um, so yeah, you 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 can definitely change uh, change the, your role, change your your domain, but it, it's basically up to you. Yeah, cool. yeah that's oh, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say my my experience is similar in that. Uh, it's definitely up to you, and, and it depends a lot on the studio and the people you're working with. But, uh, you know, just like in most disciplines, people are, are always desperate for capable individuals. So if you want to transition to a different role, the best way to do that is just to be excellent at the role you're looking to, to move into. Um, so, But at the same time, companies are trying really, game companies are trying really hard to push a product out the door. So that puts a lot of obstacles in the way of making that transition from one role to another just because once you become an expert in a specific domain, the company will definitely need you to, 
to produce in that domain because they, you know, the, your job exists because they have a need in that in yeah. that role. So that makes it difficult to extract yourself from you know stuff that you're already an expert at doing. And to be fair, that's like all companies for people who haven't worked a long time. That yeah, often this is, is the case. this is like a a epic paradox that has probably been around since the beginning of time, or at least the beginning of modern civilization. But yeah, it's just, you know, you want to specialize and, you know, by doing something, you get better at that thing. But at the same time, through being sort of eclectic, like if you look at amazing um, discoveries and inventions, they're almost always through someone taking one idea and applying it to a different field. And so, and in general, people don't, a lot of people don't like repetition. And so you're sort of, it's this paradoxical thing where, you know, you get this positive reinforcement loop from doing the thing you're good at over and over again, but then you also kind of need to keep changing it up. And so you hear a lot of these debates in any industry about open versus closed allocation and things like that. And um, um, I think it's pretty cool. A game, it sounds like the games industry is one of those places where you can kind of move around a little bit um, and uh, and still kind of, get to experience a lot of different areas in the same company. Well, I think that's what it's, it's cool when you're doing tools, actually, because you're seeing so many different things that uh, there is no routine. It's never boring. So you, you might cool. not want to change of job, actually. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Makes sense. Um, cool. So, you know, a lot of people, you know, maybe are in high school or in university or have have been through a computer science degree and so at, at one point everyone kind of thought oh, i'm going to make a cool game or maybe everyone just made tic-tac-toe at one point at least almost everyone has kind of done that at one point uh, whether it's for a course or for fun or something like that and so you know, people have made like you know pac-man clones and things like that in sort of their uh you know basement or garage or what have you and so someone who sort of has had that experience of just kind of making a game for fun what's the difference between that and actually kind of making a professional game that turns into something that you see on the shelves? Well, um, <clears throat> the main thing will be that if you are making an indie game, you will do a lot of different things. You will have to work on, uh, on 3D assets, on sounds, on menus, on programming, on the design. Uh, you will have to work on everything. But when you are making a, a AAA game, you will work on your specific system you might you might only work on this little part of the game uh, when you're doing an indie game you will work basically on, on almost everything um, yeah yeah I think that's definitely true I mean it's a lot more highly specialized I used to maybe before I became a, a professional I made, I made games myself all the time and you did get to work on every aspect of, of the game Whereas uh, once you're professionally employed, you tend to find a specific niche where you can be productive and uh, you, you learn that niche very well. And, and a lot of the other things don't necessarily come on your table that often. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I'm trying to think. I had something else to say about that, but I can't remember what it was. And I also, I remember you, you guys talking about this. I'm touching back on something that you mentioned a second ago, which is that I think a lot of programmers did come from a background where they made games or worked on games. And I know you talked about that on one of your shows recently, and I was trying to think how I got started. And actually, my, my very first program was a game that I wrote in longhand on like a 
yellow spiral notebook. It was a choose your own adventure game I wrote in basic and nice. then transcribed onto a computer. And uh, obviously, that was a terrible way to develop the program. It didn't work at all. But uh, yeah, like from the very beginning, it was always games that was driving me to become a programmer. And I really do wonder like, what percentage of programmers got into this field because they wanted to make games. Yeah, I think it's it's pretty huge. Just from I, I asked this, this to a lot of people, and uh, I would say I don't know if it's the majority, but uh, it might be. You know, yeah, more the majority of people out there um, got into it from wanting to make games. I my experience with making games, I always ended up. You know, I mean, one of the things is when you make a game by yourself, you really have no mentor, um, no one with experience telling you um, what's going on. So you have to kind of learn everything the hard way. Um, I, I had these grandiose visions of, oh, it's as complex as civilization, but has this amazing narrative that's generated automatically through an artificial intelligence. And like mm -hmm. you end up with, you know, a, an armature walking. <laughs> like after two years, you have like a stick figure in 3D <laughs> that can walk. Yeah, and, I, uh, I think that's interesting because you, it's actually a problem of scope. Uh, when, you're, when you're working on an indie game, you cannot, you, well... You might not be able to have the same scope as a as a big production, so you need to be way more pragmatic. You know, you need to go straight to the point. Yeah, yeah I think that's right. it seems like most people, when they want to make a game, the first thing they want to make is, uh, you know, I want to make a grand open world, procedurally generated MMO, <laughs> which is like the you know the the largest possible scope of a professional game. Um, yeah, but it kind of underscores one of the other big differences between making games by yourself or at an indie studio versus a triple A studio, which is just the quality requirements at a triple A studio are stratospheric relative to what you're doing by yourself. Just the level of polish that we as a studio put onto every aspect of production is way, way higher than any individual could hope to accomplish. Um, you know, we'll just obsess over things like when, when the game transitions from a cinematic uh, segment to an in-game segment, the uh, the IK on the elbows will pop a little bit. So you'll see a little shift in the character's elbows and knees when we shift from one camera to another. And we'll spend, you know, weeks trying to solve that kind of problem. But if you're making a game by yourself, there's really, it would be a foolish allocation of time to spend that much effort fixing that kind of problem. Yeah, yeah. I think that's also because as a player, uh, we all expect AAA games to actually have this kind of little details fixed but when you're playing an indie game well you might be okay with a few uh, things wrong here and there yeah that's a good point i think i think a lot of indie games are actually um one of two things either they're sort of variations on other games with like a, a clever you know funny theme or actually they're interesting stories where they could have survived as like a novel, which you know many novels are written by one person, maybe with an editor or two editors, um, and so so it's a very compelling story, and they've kind of put a game on top of it, and so that that those are the two things I think one one person, one or two people can do well. But yeah, I mean, as soon as you start saying words like MMO, you're you're yeah. you're in trouble. <laughs> but I think that's yeah, also definitely. one of the recent developments with things like Unity, um, which we had an episode about recently is uh, it, it's more than just a game engine that they're providing hobbyists, but they're trying to provide a tool chain as well, right? Stuff for managing assets and levels and that, which before, if you were trying to do that on your own, would just be crazy. 
But now if you're leveraging the work of other people in that infrastructure, even as an individual or a few people, you can try to do something more ambitious. Yeah, that leads right into our next question, which is, um, you know, obviously a lot of people know about Unity. I think two or three shows ago, we covered Unity. Um, and so the question is why do studios still roll their own game engines? I mean, it seems like everyone should just be u using Unity. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> like that quickly, I, w I would think about two different things. Um, the first is that it all depends on the game you're making, uh, how specific the needs you've got. Um, one, I think one good example is Grand Theft Auto V. I mean, if you were making Grand Theft Auto V with Unity, you would end up with a lot of problems, uh, not just about the streaming, but also about the editor part. You will end up basically rewriting everything. Uh, so all the gain that you will have by taking this existing engine, well, you will lose it because you will have to change everything. Um, the other thing is, uh, since you are using this engine developed by someone else, let's say you need these features like right now that and uh, since you are buying this engine, you might not have the, the engine team to, to make it yourself. So you depend on that other uh, company that is making this, uh, this engine. So you will have to wait for them to implement it for you. And uh, that's something you might not want because, well, you can't wait six months or one year in a production for a certain feature to be implemented. Uh, also, you you are kind of dependent on the license fees. Well, right now, the, I mean, it's Unity is free for, or almost free, uh, Unreal Engine is also uh, real cheap. Uh, but when you are a AAA studio, uh, those license fees can go can goes up really quickly. Yeah, so I think I have that. I ask myself the same question all the time. Why? Uh, why are we still able to compete given the just amazing quality of the engines you can buy off the shelf like Unity or Unreal or even the amazing quality that other larger multi-studio organizations like Ubisoft or, uh, uh, or other studios have access to? And, you know, it makes me sweat because, like, the artists will come to me and they'll show me some YouTube video of this really slick tool that's built into Unreal 4 uh, that makes it, you know, incredibly easy to build shaders or drop assets into the game. And I know that the process we have internally for doing the same things is really hacked together and duct taped together. And it's kind of embarrassing to point at that and say, yeah, we're going to make games to compete with Unreal. But uh, our tool set, in a lot of ways, um, doesn't have anywhere near that level of finish. Um, so I think about that question a lot. And I think there's a couple answers I've come up with. I don't know if they're true, but... Uh, the first one would be that when you, when you take a tool like Unreal off the shelf, then you have the same starting point as every other studio that has, un, or uh, not Unreal or, or Unity. And, uh, you know, 95% of all games fail. So you have to think hard about what is it that makes my game unique and what gives us our competitive advantage in this really competitive marketplace. Uh, and if you're using an off-the-shelf engine, it can be difficult to develop a competitive advantage because you're always working with the same, uh, the same tools that everybody else has. So even though some aspects of our pipeline are duct, duct taped together, when we decide that something is really important for our game, like if we want really smooth, buttery movement mechanics or if we want really great character faces and uh, you know, emotion in our characters, we can devote 
a lot of engineering resources to that problem that people who are uh, stuck with the tools that come with Unity or Unreal just can't devote because they, they can't crack open the covers and make those changes themselves. Or like Flo was talking about, they have to rely on a third party to provide those things for them. So even though 90% of the stuff you get out of one of those off-the-shelf tools is really slick and works really well, and you have to um, make do with uh, the last 10%, if you roll your own engine, you get to decide exactly to what you want for 100% of the engine. And it turns out that that last 10% of things is really, really important in delivering a game that can stand out from the marketplace and feel unique and be successful. Yeah, one thing that's kind of interesting about games, and I'm sure there are other fields like this, I mean, I guess movies or things like that, but is, you know, if you look at, say, Honda, for example, I mean, Honda has to do sort of variations to the car every year. But at the end of the day, like the car is largely the same from one year to the next. And so they just sort of, uh, you know, they have a product cycle, but at the end of the day, they know that they have brand loyalty and, and things like that. And they just know that a certain number of people are going to buy Hondas. And there might even be a segment of people who don't want the next Honda to look different than the first one. Uh, they just want to keep buying their Honda, right? Um, but a game is different. I mean, if you released... I mean, if you went so far as to literally release the same game a year later, no one would buy it. Like, that doesn't even mm. make sense, right? <laughs> Maybe. What? No, I mean, like, literally, like, if you were to have literally the same game, I mean, I'm taking it to the extreme, right? But And you were to discount the first game and leave the new game at the same price, there's there's no reason, right? Well, so The argument so the point is like, that is, is, like, the sports games, right? Yeah. Some sports games are really similar year to year, like, almost no changes, but the lineups are different. So you want to play the most recent... If you really follow soccer, right, you want the FIFA lineups that are this well, year's lineups. I would argue that the content is the lineup, and and that's and changing that is significant. I would argue that even though it's it's the okay, code isn't it, changing, that the game itself changes dramatically just because of the co But uh, anyways, you're right that that's sort of a corner case. But I feel like one thing that's interesting about games is that you have to sort of stay novel and you have to constantly be doing different things to you know entertain. Um, I think that is is really fascinating. And I would imagine that probably goes into needing to roll your own game engine so that um, you can sort of diversify yourself. Yeah, yeah. The, I, I think the one thing is that when when you are when you're using Unreal Engine or Unity, um, you cannot make assumption. Uh, so basically uh, those systems have to work for every different kind of games but uh, when you're making a, a, an open world game uh, you know you might not have like a 2D physics system really strong because you won't use it that much but uh, that's something that's the kind of assumption that you cannot have uh, when uh, when you're make when you're making unity or or, or unreal uh, also, yeah, the, the, the fact that you have uh, your own engine lets you try a different thing and maybe maybe in an easier way because, of course, you, you know your, your engine upside down. You, you made it yourself. So it might be easier to, uh, to uh, break everything in it, change stuff in it, and uh, to try new gameplays. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. Were, were so, you going to say something, Dave? Oh, go ahead, Dave. Uh, I'm not sure. I can't remember what I was going to say. But I do think, like, as a counterpoint to that, I think it's also worth saying that I think the tools that are there, like 
Unity and Unreal are amazing tools. And if you're a, a smaller scale developer, or even if you are a big developer whose competitive advantage doesn't come from the kind of things that derive from building your own engine, then those tools are amazing and you should embrace them and run with it. I, I can think of you know, several studios that uh, are using those, those tools and making incredible games. Uh, and so I wouldn't want to dissuade anybody who's listening to this podcast from, from taking an off-the-shelf product and, and just running with it because those things are they're really great. I'm so excited that they're on the market now. Well, and I think that's the thing as engineers, programmers, that we tend to do sometimes is say like, oh, you can't write a serious application game in thing X. And it's like, well, maybe, but you know, it just depends on what you're trying to do. Um, and we talk about this a lot like with web frameworks is another example. People say, oh, you know, I don't know how to write a web app that scales to 10 million simultaneous users. It's like, well, but that's not your initial problem. You know, your initial problem is to make it interesting for one user. Um, and so what you do to get service for one user or 100 users or 1,000 users, you have more flexibility in what tool to use. And using a really sophisticated tool or rolling your own, you know, server, you know, binaries and applications would actually just get you nowhere really fast because you would spend all your time doing that and you would never make your web app. So yeah. you're saying that if, if Unity was around, I would have been able to complete my Civilization MMO procedural <laughs> content game? Oh, I just born too early. Uh, I think anyone who tried uh, Unity and Unreal for like 10 minutes uh, quickly understands that uh, those are really, really powerful uh, tools. And uh, I, I think actually... Uh, Make w working at uh, at Epic Games or, or Unity uh, on on those uh, on those uh, editors and engines, uh, even as a tools programmer, it's almost a different kind of job than working uh, uh, on a, on your own uh, uh, level editor and engine in a AAA uh, game studios, uh, because the 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 level of details is not the same. Uh, I mean, w we don't need uh, this uh, this kind of of, uh, of generic systems, uh, and this is this is also why uh, Unreal and, and Unity are really powerful because they they can achieve this kind of uh, this kind of uh, level of details and and, and uh, generic system. Yeah, they are really impressive tools. Cool. So, um, so I would imagine like several people in the audience. Uh, several several people out there are you know students as we talked about, but there are also a lot of people who work in just a variety of industries. Uh, we've seen sort of everything from you know petroleum engineers, someone who makes lightsabers for a living, uh, <laughs> all sorts of things. And so a lot of people don't know what it's like to sort of be a full time you know programmer and specifically like in the game studio, you know day to day what it's like, kind of what the atmosphere is like. Um, so can you kind of like, take us through sort of an average day in uh, in your role and what that kind of feels like. Uh, well, as a tools programmer, uh, the days are never the same, actually. As I said earlier, there is, like, no routine. So that's something I really like about it. Uh, it's never boring, basically. Uh, you basically, you, you know what you, you have, like, long-term tasks so that you do every day. Uh, most of the times, uh, they come from the other teams, like artists, animators, designers. They need you to make some specific tools so they can work in a more efficient way. 
but very often uh, what happens is that someone comes to you with this uh, this really blocking bugs so they need you to fix it so that's the uh, no routine part of the job uh, so yeah basically one morning you can come up and uh, work on shaders and then the next day you will work on the, the 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 sequence editor and then the next day you will work on something else uh, that's a that's one of the really uh, great part of the job yeah I totally agree with that uh, I think unlike a lot of other roles a lot of other programming roles in a game studio you have a really large diversity of tasks as a game programmer so there isn't a prototypical day um, but I guess I mean the, the, the activities do break down along certain lines you spend a lot of time like Bo said doing support uh, you know an artist will call you and say uh, Maya is crashing on me or my shaders won't compile and so you spend some time trying to figure out why that's happening which is probably very similar to things that happen in any kind of programming discipline not just game programming um, and you spend a lot of time near the end of the production fighting just fighting fires, like the uh, something will go wrong and a bunch of assets will get corrupted and, and it's a little bit different than your typical support call in that it tends to be a crisis and you know, just invest a lot of energy trying to recreate work or steer around a problem that you didn't anticipate until the last minute. Uh, I guess that that is a big thing that's different from other programming disciplines when you're working in the game studio and that's that it's very cyclical the beginning of a project, right right after you ship the game, uh, feels a lot different from the end of a project three months before you're ready to ship a game. I mean, at the end, uh, you're working really long hours, and everybody's kind of uh, getting together to try and push the thing over the finish line, whereas at the beginning of the cycle, there's a lot more um, pontificating about the future and trying to decide about the architectural directions of your software and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I think working for a game studio is a, is a lot like working for a software startup, which is what I did before I was a game programmer. Um, so it's, it tends to be very loose uh, as opposed to the kind of bureaucratic or structured image that I have of other kinds of programming jobs. So not a lot of meetings is what you're saying. Yeah, I've almost no, no meetings. I have probably uh, maybe five meetings a year. Oh wow! Wow. Maybe that's. <laughs> I thought you were going to say a day. Yeah, I thought you were going to say a day too. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, we have too many meetings. <laughs> yeah, I, I consider for my job to not have many meetings relative to my previous job, but I have at least one or two a day. Yeah, I guess Patrick. Yeah, definitely. It depends on what you call a meeting, too, because I have a ton of just conversations. Like, no, we, I mean people just naturally aggregate and talk about problems in the kitchen or by their desks, but very few meetings in Outlook in a conference room where you all sit around and write in your notebooks. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going through. Yeah, I have on average three meetings a day. <laughs> oh, man. Um, cool. What about, like, I would imagine, uh, you know, a lot of people who work at a game studio or into games. And so there, I would imagine that you guys have a pretty cool game room. We, we just got a ping pong table in our game room and that was a big deal. But, uh, but I would imagine, uh, uh, you know, over there you guys have a pretty cool setup with like couches and things like that to relax every now and then. Yeah, definitely. Well, you have access to all the, the video games you can imagine. So you can even, uh, you can even take them home if you want. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Uh, but do you, but yeah. do you want to play video games at the end of the day? 
really. Uh, I think since I'm working in the video game industry, I've n I've never. Yeah, no, I I don't play so much anymore. Uh, oh, it's like it, seeing Mickey Mouse with his head off, right? You know, as yeah, soon as you kinda. work at Disney and you see the see <laughs> yeah. the Mickey Mouse, you know, with the with the, the head removed, is, it kind of. The thing is, the, the thing is, before being in the video game industry, I used to play to almost all the game I could get my hands on, and right now I'm kind of like more choosing the games I want to play. Uh, it's also maybe because of a lack of time, so I need to be more selective. Uh, but yeah, we you have a f you have also a kitchen uh, where you can uh, spend some time. Uh, we have free candies. We have yeah a lot of cool stuff. Table soccer. Uh, cool. Um, so you, we talked about seeing Mickey with his head off, and uh, <laughs> that's that kind of leads to the next question, which is you've seen different uh, you know the games at different stages. You've seen the game on day one. And you've seen the game on you know day T minus one, and uh, so sort of what's that like? Uh, you know, playing the game that's half finished. I mean, I, I found a picture in my head as you sort of drop stick figures because you don't have any artwork, and then the game is just like uber comical, you know, kind of like goofy tragic comedy of like stick figures falling over and things like that. But sort sort of what is that like? Is that kind of fun or torture, or is it? You know, what are the sort of experiences like? playing sort of the game as it as it gets more and more polished. Yeah, yeah it's definitely fun. Uh, the thing is, sometimes you need like a huge imagination to just see what the game will be at the end. Uh, especially like, I remember when, uh, for sequences of the games, uh, like when you don't have animations or you don't have the final textures and uh, instead of seeing like uh, these nice moves and animations, all you see is just your 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 character in typos moving around, just being translated, uh, and and with uh, with placeholders everywhere for sounds for uh, for the the backgrounds for everything. Uh, yeah, you definitely sometimes a, a big imagination, but it, it's funny. Uh, but the thing is, uh, as a tools programmer, I I often play the game uh, in debug, so it means I have everything uh, at uh, like the, the the settings at the lowest possible uh, because I need to debug the game. So uh, I'm often the, the last one to see like the the final quality of the game, like the with the with the highest graphics and stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, I love behind the scenes stuff. You know, I love watching uh, DVD commentary and that kind of thing where you can see how something's put together. So I really love that part at the beginning of a project where you, where it is. It's not exactly stick figures. It's like the opposite of stick figures because uh, Dotty Dog's an old studio, so we have th built up 30 years' worth of assets, and some of them look incredible. When you're starting a new game, you throw away maybe 75% of what you had, and you, but you still have, uh, to some extent, beautiful character models, and some motion loops are really highly polished animation. So you've got the opposite of a stick figure in that there's Nathan Drake, and he's running around the world, and he has perfect animation and he himself has rendered pretty well uh, but everything around him is just gray boxes and uh, you know stubbed in stuff um, and so you really do have to use your imagination and in a lot of ways it's, it's a lot of fun but it's also just terrifying because you're just seeing the enormous amount of work that's sitting in front of you uh, and I think here especially I'm always shocked at how late things come together I and mean, even just weeks or you know a couple months before a product ships 
uh, I see things that to me are just really scary. Like I'm not sure how we're going to pull it off. And it's a real uh, testament to this studio that people always exceed my expectations, even though my expectations at this point are really high of the people I'm working with. But they always just come through and do just amazing things in what seems like an impossibly short amount of time. So is it more that you'll have like a single level built up to an almost finished state before adding all the other levels? Or you have all the levels kind of start to play together, but in a really rudimentary state, and then they kind of all improve in lockstep, but you're playing the game end to end with kind of missing parts. Well, it, I guess it depends on the kind of game you're making. Uh, from my experience, everything goes up in parallel. Like every mission is built in parallel. Uh, uh, and the the features, so uh, when you... Well, at the, at the start of the production, of course, you don't have much. But uh, when you do something, uh, like a new feature, it's supposed to work on every other level at the same time. So, uh, yeah, the, the, the content is supposed to be uh, more uh, horizontal, you know, uh, working throughout the game rather than doing specific to a, a level. Right. Yeah, that's actually, uh, that's interesting. That's um, pretty different from the way we end up doing things. I think... I mean, at the beginning of the process, we end up with a large variety of different kinds of levels. You know, the designers will have cooked up a few levels to test out, or I wouldn't even really call them levels, but just environments to test out new game mechanics that they want to try, or just uh, obstacles or puzzles that they think would be interesting. And at the same time, in pre-production, they've developed a narrative arc for the story, and some parts of that arc they may be confident will go into the game and other parts they may think are going to require some tweaking. So the parts that have more confidence end up going to production earlier. Um, so you'll see that stuff get put together early in the process. But there are big chunks of the game that we may not even start working on until pretty late in the process. Uh, we'll tend to do a vertical slice at some point where we try and come up with a section of the game that demonstrates all the gameplay mechanics that we want all the rendering features that we think we'll need, and we'll test out all the elements of the production pipeline that we expect to have at the end. And then we'll build that start to finish to a high level of polish just to make, just to validate that we're going down a path that we can actually finish. And then from there, if things are successful, we'll make adjustments and start to bring other parts of the game to a greater level of polish. And then we just test like crazy. Every six weeks near the end of the project, we'll have focus testing where game uh, people will come in and play the game and based on their feedback we'll make changes and try and make it more fun and cut out stuff that's not working. Yeah, one, one thing. Oh, go ahead, Lawrence. Oh, sorry. Yeah, one thing is that uh, I, I don't know at Naughty Dog, but at Ubisoft we use a lot of test maps. I think you said that, Dave. Uh, that's something uh, most of the people uh, don't know is that is that when you when you are, for example, implementing a new feature, you won't. Uh, test it directly into the final game. You will actually make like a test map that is dedicated to that and everybody that someone is like iterating on these new features. This will be the, the map that you will that you where where you will test your features. And uh yeah we we're, we're trying to do things in a modular way. Uh and then we put that in the final game. So I heard stories actually I believe the stories came out of Naughty Dog Studios but um, there's stories about like the original Crash Bandicoot and how they had this crazy sort of uh, uh, Monte Carlo heuristic to pack things. Uh, yeah, pack we were talking about assets. that last episode. Yeah, we talked about this last episode. And so 
um, you you hear so much about this. There's a there was an old game where um, you had to shoot. It was a Star Wars game for the Atari fifty or Atari twenty six hundred, where you just shot these horizontal lasers at this Death Star looking thing, and there was a band in the middle of the screen um, where you were invulnerable, but you also couldn't shoot. And it didn't really make sense. And then the game developer said, yeah, I couldn't fix this bug. And so I just made it part of the game. And so you just hear these <laughs> stories of just this, like, it sounds very epic of just, uh, like, amazing feats of engineering at very desperate moments. And uh, and I just wonder, you know, uh, I haven't really kept up to date. And so just with Moore's Law, computers getting stronger, more memory, things like that. Do you still have these sort of crazy moments where at the end you have to do something heroic to make the game work? Or is that kind of a relic? Um, yes and no. Um, I think maybe not in tools, actually. Maybe if you ask to gameplay programmers, they might have this kind of story. But uh, since I'm making tools, uh, the, the tools I'm making are not, ship are not shipped with the game. Uh, but yeah, since the deadline is often yesterday, uh, you might, especially at the end of the game when you are crunching, you might end up uh, like uh, forgetting all your uh, nice rules about how to write nice code <laughs> and start to uh, right. start to uh, be efficient. Well, efficient, if you can call this efficient, but uh, pushing stuff in the game. Yeah, I don't have specific stories about it though. Yeah, it definitely happens. Uh, I'm trying to think of good examples of that are good stories. Most of the, the examples I can think of aren't that sexy or just don't make great stories. Like, uh, I know that during the, near the end of one of our last projects, we got within a couple weeks of having to print discs and sip, send them off to the manufacturing to go into Best Buy. And we still hadn't received something like 95% of the translations for one of the languages, which would mean if we didn't get those into the game, that would mean uh, delaying production and delaying the ship of the game, and it would basically cost just tens or tens of millions of dollars probably for us to recover from that mistake. So when you face the prospect of trying to chew through a uh, hundred thousand audio files all within the last week of production and try and make sure that they all live up to our standards for quality, that can be pretty terrifying, but not necessarily that exciting. There's other bugs where I know. Our save games were getting corrupted after we shipped the, the Last of Us, so there was a pr pretty heroic effort to try and solve that as quickly as possible because it meant people were playing the game and then uh, losing their all of their progress after the first day. Um, yeah, stuff stuff definitely happens, but I'm failing to come up with great examples to talk about. All right, cool. Yeah, it sounds... Uh, it, I mean, anything that's on sort of a product cycle... Um, I believe Patrick, your your current task is on a product cycle. Is that correct or no? Somewhat, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, my, me as well. I'm rather new to it, but my current task has me on a product cycle, and it's it is pretty stressful uh, and pretty. But it's also pretty pretty awesome when you have such a tight deadline to sort of see what sort of innovative thing you can do to get you know the eighty percent, the mythical eighty percent solution. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of the stories end up being things for me is like there's some bug you can't find and you end up just trying to detect the thing that causes the bug and just like end around it. Like when you notice this happening, uh, just reset this other thing. And then you, you know, just document it that like, just do this. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, I remember seeing some, some issue in a video game 
might have been like Zelda Ocarina of Time where some level crashed and in the end they just deleted that level and shipped it. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> funny thing. But uh, cool. So, um, so it, you know, there's obviously, you know, there's a lot of people who are really into games, love what you guys are doing and want to become a game programmer. Uh, many of people that we talk to are, um, you know, in university or maybe going to university again or in high school or, you know, things like that. Definitely like, you know, interested in learning. Um, those are people who kind of graduate, uh, gravitate to the show and things like that. So for these kind of people, what sort of subjects should they study uh, to become a good, you know, game programmer, tools programmer, uh, et cetera? Uh, well, definitely uh, computer science, of course, but m mathematics like linear algebra, uh, everything that is related to 3D. Uh, even if you uh, won't do that every day, like even if you're not a graphics engineer, uh, when you will apply for a job in the video game industry, you can be sure that you will be asked questions about 3D. So uh, mm -hmm. y you, you, you need to know your linear algebra. Uh, also, uh, a bit about uh, low-level architecture, like the, the machines, how they work, how the CPU work, and in relation with the memory. Once again, even if it's not your everyday job, uh, they're going to ask you to, and uh, it can, it, it, it's really useful uh, sometimes uh, when you need to optimize stuff. Uh, you also need a good demo or a good project, even if it's not uh, related to uh, to video games, even if it's a, it's a tool, if it's a, a procedural, if it's something generating stuff procedurally, wh whatever it is, uh, have a, a good portfolio and, and, and good tools. Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. Those are all, uh, especially would want to underscore the need for strong math skills. Um, I think that's something that differentiates game programming from other disciplines. Uh, there's a more math required, especially linear, linear algebra, than um, you would encounter in traditional application programming. So if you're looking for a way to study for game programming as opposed to other fields, that would be something to spend a lot of time on. Um, I'd also point out that at a high level, we as a studio, and I'm sure every other studio, are just desperate for qualified people. So. If you want to get into the industry, just do your best to become qualified, and the studios will definitely want to uh, to use your skills. Um, some other things that I can think of that maybe wouldn't have been obvious to me uh, on my road here, like facing forward, but looking back, but there's a lot of projects that I worked on that I found especially educational. Um, so I would just list a couple of those, like. Uh, Making your own OS, even if it's just a tiny one that does barely anything, is really valuable for teaching you the relationship between the computer hardware and the software that's running on it. Um, building a compiler is, is equally inc incredibly educational for teaching you what's going on behind the covers when you, when you write your software. Uh, writing a ray tracer is a really valuable thing to learn that 3D math and to learn graphics. And it's surprisingly not that difficult. Like once you get into it, it looks incredibly impenetrable when you start out, but uh, once you're done, you will have learned a ton of stuff that's incredibly valuable. And then of course, just make games. Like do whatever you can do that keeps you excited about making games and uh, those projects will lead you down a path that should be successful. That's funny that you talk about uh, making a retracer for learning linear algebra because that's exactly what I did actually when I was a, 
when I was a student, I, I wanted to be uh, fluent with matrices and, and stuff like that. So I thought, what kind of project would allow me to learn this? And I thought about a ray tracer. So that's exactly what I did. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's, it's really important to, uh, to have educational project. And it'll also help you if you want to do machine learning. <laughs> What's uh, that? So that's completely opposite, learning about <laughs> linear algebra and matrices, because that's the other thing that crops up all the time. Because I don't program games, but only time I encounter math is when someone's done some machine learning something. And then it's like, oh, there's the math. I found it. It's hiding in one place in the project. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I would have thought um, that you would definitely want to do something practical, you know, in the sense that if you have to choose between linear algebra and you know, networking, you know, you know ether, Ethernet networking. I would imagine that the choice would be Ethernet networking, but I'm actually proven wrong. It sounds like having sort of a good theoretical computer science background is, is, is still really important for game development. Yeah, definitely. But it's not all, uh, it's not all theoretical. Uh, when, when I mean, for example, uh, know your linear algebra, uh, when you're making a retracer, it's not just uh, a good algorithm. You know, you're not sending to people a CPP file. Uh, it's actually a software that can generate uh, pictures, and this is what you're gonna you're gonna send uh, in, uh, to people uh, for to apply for for a job with uh, with all those nice pictures that you've made and all the, the techniques you you've, you you were able to to develop. Uh, but yeah, you, you're right in. Uh, in being pragmatic, like if you're making a, a game demo, uh, maybe try to reduce the scope rather than trying, you know, as we said earlier, to do these open world MMO games that you will never finish anyway. Uh, so yeah, uh, it, it, you definitely need to be to be practical in some ways. Yeah, but I mean, I, I do think you're right that um, you might be using linear algebra more during the interview process than during your job if you're looking for a job like uh, a network engineer um, and consistent with what I was saying before about just becoming qualified at what you want to do. If you really want to be a network engineer at a game studio, then yeah, I would just recommend learn Ethernet in and out. Learn everything you can about networking and about how uh, networking in games is applied. And I think that would also be a perfect way to find your way into the industry. And it's other industries, too, that have the kind of thing where you have to do stuff for the interview only sometimes. Like, you know, when I did interview for my current company, I had to implement, uh, you know, a heap sort. And it's like, since I've worked at the company, I've never implemented my own heap sort. There's libraries that do that for me. But to prove I had the knowledge, right, like that was what I needed to do to pass the interview. Yeah, that's right. And sort of along those lines, um, this is, this seems kind of obvious, but it's it's actually it was it was surprising to me, and I had to learn it the hard way. So I will try to spare as many people as possible. But know about games. <laughs> I mean, I I applied for a job uh, a long time ago, and uh, it wasn't it wasn't a game programming job, but uh, um, the interview was going well. I felt like I could answer the technical questions and things like that. And at some point, someone was asking me questions kind of about the product of the company, and uh, the only thing I knew about the company was that I had, you know, created an account because you had to create an account to apply for a job. And uh, uh, it ended up just kind of that part went very badly as it should have because I, uh, you know, didn't sort of do any research uh, beforehand on the company itself. I kind of just thought, oh, they want someone to write code. I can write code. Um, but the reality is 
is you know they want someone who sort of belongs who they um feel like they can trust and uh who feels like is committed to sort of that company's vision um you know if, if they just the problem with just getting someone who can code is that it's sort of like contract work right i mean they might as well outsource it but if they're hiring you to join their company they want you to sort of join their family right and so uh in this case you know that means understanding the games and uh, understanding the games that company makes and and sort of what their audience is and how how they work things like that yeah you, you definitely need passion anyway uh you know, uh, you often heard those crazy stories about uh, someone who was hired just because, uh, I don't know, he knocked on the door, there was light, he came in, and then he got hired. But that was like maybe 10, 20 years ago. Uh, now it's uh, it's so complicated to make a game that uh, you basically all the, all the studios in the world are, are looking for really strong uh, artists and really strong programmers, so they can be quite selective. So... Yeah, you, you you need you, you need skills, of course, but uh, knowing the games is, of course, mandatory. So, so what if I have a high score in a game? Will that mean I can get a job? <laughs> uh, actually, uh, maybe to be in a QA. Okay. That might help, but uh, <laughs> for something else, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I actually I used to do some work on emulators. Um, I have done a lot of work on emulators, and uh, there have been a lot of people from sort of the emulator. I guess scene. I don't know if that sounds too hipster, but there's been yeah. like a lot of a lot of people <laughs> from the sort of the emulator scene who have gone to game companies, and game companies tend to really like those people because um, they know they're into games and uh, they can do sort of the low level um, bit of it. And so you know, we always talk about do open source, do open source if if you want to you know get started on a project. And in, although games. Um, we just talked about how hard it is to make a game by yourself. Um, there's tons of open source projects that are games related and that can give you um, really great experience. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say that that's definitely true and it's so much fun too. I mean, those projects are, it's so much fun to work on your own game. So uh, and you definitely have to be passionate, um, like you were saying. I don't, I don't know anybody here who well, I, I guess I know a few people. I know very few people who don't love games and play them a lot on their own. Just because if you if you didn't love it, uh, you probably could make more money for less work in a different field. So why would you why would you bother? Um, but if you do really enjoy it, uh, you know it's a great place to be. Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of it is about you know I answer a lot of questions on Quora, and so many questions on Quora are of the format. Should I do X or should I do Y to get the best job? As if it's like some kind of optimization problem. Like what, what should I take course CS 101 or CS 102 so I can go work at, you know, hot startup XYZ. And the reality is like you should, you should just follow your passion. And, uh, and uh, if, if your passion is, uh, you know, emulators, then there's a high likelihood that you will do something that involves that, that kind of level of detail and things like that. Um, and so this is this is no exception. You know, if you find your passion is games, then you will have a much easier time uh, when you do have that crunch time and you have to work those hours. Like you will have much easier time reconciling that. And even if you've seen sort of Mickey Mouse with his with his head off, you'll still sort of have satisfaction at the end of the day looking at the finished game because because you you've immersed yourself in that culture. 
I'm just gonna yeah, have nightmares when I go to sleep tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Zombie headless Mickey Mouse. Thanks. thanks. <laughs> Zombie. Headless. Oh man. Sorry, I interrupted. Someone was gonna say something important. Nope. Nope. Okay. Cool. Um. So, yeah, this is awesome. So we'll definitely, um, you know, as as Dave said, and I'm sure as Florent uh, uh, also believes, um, you know, Naughty Dog and Ubisoft respectively. Uh, definitely want to have talented, you know, engineers, artists, um, um, designers, writers, things like that. And so we'll definitely we'll grab a link from you guys and put it on the uh, on the blog. Um, if I'm assuming you guys have some kind of like careers page, jobs page, things like that. And so we'll we'll definitely give out the link so people who are interested can sign up. Yeah, okay. definitely uh, we do and. If you're interested and qualified, go apply. That's exactly how I ended up here. Yeah, definitely. You guys cool. have any last comments? Well, uh, play games, make games. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll agree with that. <laughs> I'll let that be the final. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. And uh, super interesting. And... Uh, yeah, everyone out there, um, definitely send us your, your feedback. Um, if you have any questions for Dave or, or Florent, I can pass them over. Um, you can just ask on Facebook or on Google+, um, and uh, we can make sure they're routed to the right person and all of that. Um, the sh as far as the one bit of information about the show itself, kind of a bit of meta information on the show, is we do have a Patreon set up, and so I'll send out the link to that. So somebody... Uh, just actually uh, um, introduced us to Patreon, it's, or Patreon, I suppose. It's this website where um, you can sort of show your craft and then people can kind of subscribe to it. And um, they also have sort of a donation. So if you, uh, if you aren't interested in, say, the book of the show, but you still want to support the show, um, you can go on this Patreon site and, uh, and sign up. And we do really, some people have already done that. Um, I don't know how you found us, but that's cool. Um, we, I do appreciate that, and uh, that definitely helps keep our. We have pretty intense um, hosting costs, and so that does sort of help us out there. So I do appreciate it, and uh, thank you guys for all the comments and uh, for all the support you give. All right, till next time. The intro music is Axo by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind.